0: Please pray with me. God, as we come here today with our various commitments, with those we serve and those who serve us, we ask that you would remind us to be servants of others that we may be masters of ourselves, to take our thoughts and think through them Take our hearts and love through them. Take our bodies and work through them. So that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. Amen. For several weeks now, I've been puzzling over this parable, which goes by the title of the shrewd or dishonest or unjust manager. You take your pick, shrewd, dishonest, or unjust, and in particular, these verses. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Now, what in heaven's name does that mean? Is it possible that somebody wrote down Jesus' words the wrong way and they got enshrined in Scripture? Or, Or maybe it's an earlier problem. Maybe as the early church communities were telling these stories around the campfire, trying to remember what Jesus had said, what he had done, these great stories... Maybe they just got it wrong and it got put down in the record and we've been having to deal with it ever since. I don't know. I wrote you in the blog this week that parables are meant to make us scratch our heads to puzzle and to ponder. Anybody who thinks that Jesus' teaching is clear and straightforward clearly hasn't spent much time in parables. And there are about 46 of them total in the three Gospels, four Gospels. They are meant to make us think They're meant to have us wrestle with moral complexity. Jesus knew better than anybody else that people aren't all good and all bad. We're both a mix of these things, and it's complex. And the systems that we're involved with are complex, and parables take us into that complexity in wonderful ways. Parables are something that require you to use your faith as a compass more than a roadmap. They're like... Many episodes of a reality show where you're dropped down into some difficult situation in a remote, God-forsaken part of the world, and you can only bring one thing with you, naked and afraid. You best bring the compass of your faith to give you some direction. And when I think about the compass of faith, I always come back to the two greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So keep that in mind. But let's think a little bit more about this specific parable. I want to think about it two different ways, at least. And I'll just say I'm indebted to the work of Thomas Long, a professor at Candler School of Theology, and Sam Wells, the former dean of Duke Chapel at Duke University, for helping me understand this parable and come up with this sermon. Now, let's look at the parable just on its immediate merits and apply it to modern life. You can easily read this parable as a familiar story of a corporate crime. The CEO of a corporation discovers that a trusted manager has been dishonest, squandering resources and cooking the books. Now from our vantage point, none of these claims are substantiated, but nonetheless, the CEO calls the manager in and makes a quick decision. You're fired. Clean out your desk, turn in your keys, your laptop and your credit card, and get out of here. And of course, it puts the manager in a full-scale crisis. As Valencia intoned beautifully, what am I going to do? I've lost my job and I have no other useful skills. I'm I'm too weak for manual labor and I'm too proud to beg. And so he tosses and turns in his anxiety and despair. He frets and he ponders and he schemes. And then a light bulb comes on. He has a brilliant idea. Instead of hiring a lawyer, instead of going to HR, he quickly goes to many of the company's clients as he can and he reduces their accounts payable. How much do you owe us? Well, now you've been a good customer, just let's cut that in half. How much do you owe? Okay, well, why don't you just take off 20%? Consider it a personal favor from me. In other words, he's cozying up, ingratiating himself to every customer, giving them a helping hand, so that when he's out on his tukus, they may be willing to help him up again. After all, it may be too late to make any more money, But it's not too late to raise a little social capital. Now, I know upon first reading, this seemed wrong. He's not playing the game right. If I were his boss, I would be infuriated further. He's messing up my client base for his own purposes. But surprisingly, as Jesus tells the story, the CEO ends up saying to the manager, good for you. You were stuck in a big hole and you got out of it simply by being generous to other people. You realize that generosity is the best investment. You know, you're better at this than I am. He didn't say that exactly, but you can imagine it. Okay, let's look at the parable another time, but let's look at it just clearly as an economic case study, something they might do over at a business school. It's a stark picture of economic realities, It starts with the rich man, one man who has a huge amount of money. The story begins with him because he's the guy with all the power. And everyone else's status is determined by how they relate to him. He has a manager, and in this kind of economy, you'd like to be the manager because you get to spend someone else's money as if it were yours. But there's a downside to this economy it's dictated by sudden mood changes, by conjecture and speculation by gossip and anxiety. Because word goes round that the manager is doing a poor job, and boom, just like that, he's fired. No severance package, no retirement party, he's out on the street. No job security, no respect, no trust, just part of the revolving door of this economy. There's a lot of money and power out there, but everyone is just a pawn in the rich man's game. And the manager wonders to himself, I wonder whether this is the only kind of economy going. I wonder whether in a desperate moment it might be time to try a different approach. And what might this different approach involve? Well, you can find it in the origin of the word economics. In the original Greek, the word for economics translates as the rule of the house or household management. It means putting your house in order. But what if you've lost everything? What if your home, your job, your income is lost in this kind of cutthroat economy? So here's what the manager says to himself. He says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as a manager, people may welcome me into their homes. Welcome me into the homes. That's interesting because it's an important phrase repeated later. The verse that I had problems with, welcome me into the eternal homes. In other words, when my economics has taken me to a dead end, it may be time to invest in a different economy. When my household is bankrupt, it may be time to think about how other people's households function. It may be time to change. Now, the Jewish and Christian speakers, it's a little warm up here, have words that name the two economies portrayed in this story. The economy of mammon and the economy of manna. Mammon basically means money, wealth, possessions. It's the economy you and I are all used to. It's the economy we swim in all the time. And mammon is fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't necessarily go as far as it needs to. It only includes certain people, certain things. It only lasts a certain amount of time. Mammon is fundamentally the economy of scarcity, It's a world in which there's really not enough to go around. It means that I use all my energy, making sure that I get as big a piece of the limited pie as I possibly can. There's also the economy of manna, the economy that the manager discovers after he's fired. Manna is the food God gave to the Hebrews as they were in a holding pattern for 40 years in the wilderness, trying to make it to the promised land. Manna fell at night. It was ready in the morning and there was always more than they needed. It only dried up when they tried to take two days' supply at once, and they couldn't get it anymore. Manna is for everybody. It gives what money cannot buy, and it never expires. Manna is the economy of abundance. It's the currency of the kingdom of God. And one of the secrets in the Bible about finding deep joy in life is learning to love the kind of stuff of life that God gives us in plenty. And the name for those things is manna. The manager gives up on trying to get as much money as he can out of the client, and he starts making friends instead, investing in relationships. He realizes that friends are more important than the money or even the job. He moves from mammon to manna, from scarcity and perpetual anxiety to abundance and limitless grace. And then what happens? His boss, the rich guy, realizes that his economy is much bigger than his. Even though he's more clever with the cash, he sees a winning formula. And he doesn't patronize the guy. He doesn't say you're a lousy manager, but at heart you're a decent guy. Instead, he recognizes my economy is smaller than yours. You're the one who's living in a big economy, and I need to learn from you. Now, this isn't bleeding liberal hearts versus hard-nosed conservative. This is two economies face-to-face. An economy of friendship is just plain bigger than the rich man's economy of debt. And the manager is leaving the rich man's economy and the investments he's made that have made him rich in ways that the rich man can only begin to imagine. Now, this is the story of economics that Jesus told the disciples, but he also issued a challenge to them and to us about how we're to live in this kind of big economy. In his own commentary on the parable, Jesus reminds us that in this type of economy, you and I are called to be children of light. Essentially, he says, I wish the children of light, I wish the people of God, I wish the people of the church were as shrewd for the gospel as the wheeler dealers out there in the world are shrewd for themselves. In other words, there are people out there in the culture who get up every morning thinking about how to make a buck, focusing every ounce of energy on increasing their own stockpiles, working in overdrive to save themselves and to climb to the top of the heap. And Jesus says, I wish God's people would be just as focused and energetic for the beloved community of the church universal. You know, when they ordain people to ministry in the Presbyterian church, they ask the candidate coming forward for ordination, will you seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. Now, this fable, this parable, is about the terms of the money and power of the world. And when you think about the world, Jeff Bezos gets up every morning of his career focusing all of his energy, imagination, intelligence, and passion to make Amazon a thriving, dominating company. Vladimir Putin, I would posit, gets up every morning focusing all of his energy, imagination, intelligence, and passion on figuring out how to dominate the world stage. And Jesus is asking us, Why in heaven's name should you, as my disciples, as my people of God, as children of light, do anything less for the things of God? What if you and I got up every morning focusing all of our energy, our imagination, our intelligence, and our passion on ways of peace, Paths of justice, love of God, hope of the good news, the promise of being the living, breathing, thinking, imagining body, and light of Christ in the world. Tom Long tells the story of visiting a church where they had a regular practice in worship of people getting up and telling their own story of how they've experienced God in their life. And on the Sunday he was there, there was a young woman who was a dancer who had grown up in the church, and she stood up to give her testimony— Her voice was trembling, and she said, you know, I've grown up in this church. I was baptized right over at that font. I don't remember it because I was just a baby. But my parents, my father in particular, always told me about it. He remembered the day perfectly, the hymns they sang, the scripture that was read, the relatives that were visiting, what they said in the sermon that day. And he always reminded me of it, and he said, you know, the Holy Spirit was alive in the church on that day. The woman went on to say, growing up as a young child in this church, I was often restless during worship, and I wondered where the Holy Spirit was. Was the Holy Spirit up in the rafters? Was the Holy Spirit in the stained glass or in the organ pipes or in the choir? And then her voice softened, and she said, you know, I lost both my parents in the same week last winter and I had gone to visit them at the hospital knowing it might be the last time I would see them. And I came here in the church just to be by myself in a back pew. And Sarah Graham, one of the mothers of the church, was off making the family night dinner here in the church and she saw me over there and she took off her apron and she came back to the back pew and sat next to me and held my hand and prayed with me as I was sobbing. As Tom Long observes, Sarah Graham could have stayed in the kitchen. She would have been faithful and obedient, making that meal for the family night. But she had the discernment to sense the urgency of the moment, to know that the meal being prepared in the kitchen paled in importance before the needs of a grieving young woman sobbing in the sanctuary. And when she took off her apron, she showed herself not just to be a Christian, but a shrewd Christian, a Christian of energy, imagination, intelligence, and love. Now, there's the other part of what Jesus said, the one that I thought was a verse that had been remembered wrong, when he says, Make friends of yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Dishonest wealth is probably best translated from the Greek as money of this unrighteous or unjust age. In other words, it's not the money that's corrupt. It's the culture that's corrupt. And Jesus is not talking about dishonest, unjust money versus good money. He's talking about all the money, all the resources, every last penny of it. He wants us to take all of our resources and make friends for ourselves with it. So here's the heart of the matter. the... The world is going to eagerly tell us how to use our goods, our money, our resources shrewdly. And if we have money, wise financial heads will advise us to invest it, to leverage it, to put it to work in the marketplace. It takes money to make money. So take a little pile of dough and make it rise. And that's shrewd advice. Unless this world, with all its glittering empires and powerful people, is passing away. What if the truth, the truth that's hidden from every savvy shark on Wall Street, is that the world, in all of its glory, is dying before our eyes, and a new world, God's kind of world, is being born. Then a new vision and a new wisdom should be summoned. And the shrewd among us should invest not what we have in this world, but the world to come. And this is precisely what Jesus tells us to do. I wish the children of light... We're as shrewd at investing in the coming world as the wheeler dealers are investing in this world. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of this dying age, so that when this present age passes away, you will have invested in what is eternal, what is true what truly endures. It's as if our currency that we're used to is running out. It's a doomed sovereignty. And in that doomed sovereignty, in that doomed economics, we will reap what we sow. It has a limited shelf life. But are we going to invest in eternal things? Four years ago, I shared the story with you of Julius Rosenwald, who is a capitalist investor who made Sears Roebuck into the mail order catalog giant it became. He had a powerful sense from his Jewish background of tzedakah, justice and righteousness. And in tikkun olam, healing the world. One of the things you may not know about Sears and Roebuck is it leveled the playing field for consumers in this country. For African American people living in Jim Crow South, they could then order in ways that at a store they may be barred from entry. Rosenwald had this idea that he was going to live on a third of his income give away a third of his income, and save the other third. He, wanted to, he had a goal of making $15,000 a year. In his lifetime, he would give over $62 million away, establishing funds for cultural institutions that we still enjoy today, like the Museum of Science and Industry and Technology, like the Rosenwald Fund that helped people like John Lewis and Maya Angelou and Langston Hughes get their start. But one of his most enduring legacies is in Jim Crow South, where little African-American children didn't have adequate schools, he built schools for them. Nearly 5,000 schools across the South in equity-sharing arrangements with the local communities. You say Julius Rosenwald knew something about how to live in the small and give it to the big economy in ways that mattered. The choice is given to you and me again and again. If we want to live in a small economy, which a lot of our systems require of us, or if we're going to live in a big economy, one that makes friends, one that sets people free, one that liberates captives, gives sights to the blind, one that is, he says earlier in Luke's gospel, invites all the people to the great banquet of life. And you and I have choices all the time of which it will be. The small economy of scarcity where we Spend our lives fearing for our jobs, our livelihoods, our reputations, our health, our family, our life, ourselves. Or the big economy where we may fear nothing. Where we invest in things that money cannot buy. And we know the things that hardship and even death cannot take away from us. We learn to love the things that God gives us in plenty. And we learn to live a truly abundant life. In closing, yesterday I went over to the federal prison at Fort Devens to meet one last time face-to-face with our dear friend Mark, who is living out his term of incarceration and will soon be moved to another location to enter a program that may speed up his release. As Mark has testified to this congregation, he lived in the small economy in a big way, making millions and millions of dollars, but he made some mistakes. Mistakes that brought him into incarceration and a big restitution fee. He shared that with us publicly in worship about 10 days before he was to be entered into the prison system. The next two weeks may be a little rough for him. They like to mess it up as they send you from place to place. But the interesting thing is that when any of us go to visit Mark, we ask how he's doing, he says, I'm great, because he's treated this incarceration as a spiritual retreat, He's been reading and meditating and praying. And I realize as he and I actually discussed this parable yesterday that he has found his way into the big economy. Even though he is at retirement age and will be getting out of prison at that age, he's not concerned. He has found richer, deeper relationships in this community and in his recovery community that he knows will sustain him for a long time. I ask you and, uh, and me to think about this parable, how we are investing in eternal homes, how we do that here in the ways we care and love for the people around us in all the ways God offers us to practice that currency. Amen.